Okay, today and next week, we're going to be talking about the need for deeds. Some of you have the need for speed. I've seen the way you pull out of the parking lot when we leave here. And there's one person who shall remain nameless, but his first initial is K and his last name is Rap, (laughs) is one of those kinds of people. He has a, uh, he has, to- oh man, he's in here. Ken, could you walk out? Ken has told me that he has a license plate that says something like, move, get out, get out of the way. If you, if you can see, if you can read this, get out of the way. And he's told me on numerous occasions that he can't put a CBC sticker on the back of his truck because it would be negative advertising for our church. <laughs> Some of you have the need for speed. But today we're going to be talking about the need for deeds, understanding the role of good works in your life. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says that we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want you to think a, a little bit this morning about why you do what you do. Motive matters, doesn't it? Motive matters. Why do you pursue the things that you pursue? Why do you value the things that, that you value? What is, what is the motivation that, su- that supplies the drive to the stuff that you do in your life? Motive matters. The motive, of a, motive matters in the case of a person who is driving their car along one day and strikes another person and kills them. If this, if this goes to trial, they're going to be asking questions like, did the driver have this meticulous plan that he's been working on for months to run over this person and make it appear like an accident? Or did the driver run over the person in a fit of rage? There was no premeditation. But they just got angry and ran the car over the person and killed them? Was the driver sending a text message at the time? He had no intent to to harm anyone, but by his negligence, he does cause harm. Or did a person just step out in front of the car in a way that he never could have anticipated? Motive in all those situations matters a lot, doesn't it? And God cares about why we do what we do. Because God cares about our hearts. That's what separates being a genuine experience of Christianity from merely being a good person, a moral person, a religious person. A person who is religious in the negative sense, there's a, there's a good sense in which you can be religious, but a person who's religious in the negative sense is the kind of person who asks this question, what is, what is the stuff that I need to do to be right with God? That's religion. That's trying to make yourself a good person, be a moral person. But God isn't satisfied with mere religious observance, is he? God isn't, the, the Bible isn't this book that you open up and say, okay, flip through the pages. What is, it, what is it that God wants me to do? And I write down the commands and then I do that stuff. Is God satisfied with that? No. 
Because God isn't, God isn't looking just to give a, a moral backbone to your life, a moral structure to your life so that you could be a good person. God is after something that's, that's another layer. He's after our hearts, and it's altogether possible for us to do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And that's why I want to talk to you this morning about the role of works or good deeds in your life. The Bible is full of, of, of imperatives, commands, things that we're supposed to do, things that we're not supposed to do, how we carry ourselves, how we, ca- how we act. We talk about a Christian walk. What is your Christian walk like? It's referring to your life. It's referring to the, referring to the way that you carry yourself. But it's important that we have a proper understanding of the why behind our works. It's very important that we have a proper understanding of the why behind our works because there are a couple of different ditches that we need to avoid when it comes to why we do what we do. The first one is legalism. The person who is a legalist says, says this, I must obey so that God will accept me. This gives the wrong emphasis to our works. I must obey so that God will accept me. I must look into the Bible and I must use it as a moral guidebook for my life so that hopefully things will work out for me all right in the end. That's legalism. But there's another ditch on the other side. I need not obey since God accepts me. That's the other ditch. There's the legalism on the one side. There's license on the one side. Because God has forgiven me in Christ, I am free and clear to live my life however I choose without regard for the moral will of God. Because that magnifies what Jesus has done on the cross. So Christians don't need to be people who are overly concerned about, about stuff. It's all going to work out okay in the end. Okay, those are two ditches that we want to try to avoid, the ditch of legalism and license. So to avoid these two extremes, I want want to give you this summary statement that we're going to explore over the next couple of weeks. And I'm going to, I'll talk through this to make sure we're understanding it together. Summary statement is this. Good works are a necessary consequence, not the qualifying condition of our standing with God. If any of that doesn't make sense immediately, hopefully it will by the end of the couple of weeks that we explore this. Good works are a necessary consequence, but not the qualifying condition of our acceptance with God. Or you could put it another way if you wanted to use an agricultural analogy. Good works are the fruit, not the root, of our acceptance with God. They are the fruit, not the root, of our acceptance with God. And I want us to focus today on the latter part of that definition, that works are not a qualifying condition of our standing with God. What do I mean by a qualifying condition? You see a commercial on TV, and it shows this beautiful new car, and it talks about how easy it is to get one of these beautiful new cars. Uh, you know, you've seen the, the Volkswagen sign, then drive event. You can sign, sign for it and just drive the car right off the lot. And it seems, seems really simple. I haven't actually tried to do it. So maybe it is actually that simple. If anybody has tried the, the sign, then drive, you can let me know. But at the end of those kind of commercials, there's this guy that comes on and talks at the speed of light. 
And he says something like this, vow not offer in all 50 states, tax on license fees apply, you must be 20 years age, blah, 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 blah. And you're like, what, what, what? I didn't catch that. What he's doing is he's giving the qualifying conditions for how you can get that vehicle. In other words, not everybody qualifies to receive that vehicle. You may not be the right age. You might not have the proper income requirement. You might not live in the right state. There are any number of conditions that might disqualify you from being able to get a lease on that car. I can walk into an Aston Martin dealership and try to purchase an Aston... What's that? They probably wouldn't let me walk into the Aston Martin... Thanks. You know, with all the technical problems I have, and then I got this. I can walk into an Aston Martin dealership and try to lease a new Aston Martin. But I'm just guessing that I don't meet the qualifying conditions to do that for various reasons, one of them probably being they'd see me coming, another one probably being an income requirement. So when it comes to our acceptance before God, I want us to see that our works are not a qualifying condition. Not a qualifying condition of our acceptance with God. Good works, I just can't win here. Good works cannot acquire our acceptance with God. I'm sorry. Pete, can you... (laughs) What's that? We did. We need need another crockpot. Those guys are trying to mess with the internet back there. Okay, you know what? I'm going to ditch the, ditch the presentation, okay? You're not going to have visuals. So you're just going to have to actually listen this time. <laughs> oh, no. Number one, good works cannot acquire our acceptance with God. Many people uh, in your neighborhood, and even in the church probably, are working with this idea that they're going to bring something to the table on the day that they die. They're going to bring something to the table before God, and God's going to put on those, those skinny, like, reading glasses that, that you put on when you're looking at stuff like this. He's going to open their folder, and he's going to look through, and he's kind of going to take, make an assessment on how good that they've been. And they're going to have some excuses. You know, I went through a rough period in my life here. I went through a rough period in my life here. But, you know, I, I know it's not all great, but look at page 37. You know, there was some good stuff I did. Uh, during that year of my life, and 45 is also looking favorable for me. Okay, people go to God, think, kind of have a general idea that that's how it's going to work. And God's going to look at that, and he's got a stamp, and he's going to assess it. And if you've done well enough, he's going to stamp you through into heaven. And if you haven't done well enough, it's hell. But the Bible tells us that works are useless to contribute to our standing with God. This is where motivation comes in. Works, good works, are absolutely useless when it comes to our standing with God. The Bible tells us that we're going to have to leave that resume of righteousness that we've been able to put together, we've got to leave that resume of righteousness at home. One of the most outwardly righteous people in the Bible, the Apostle Paul, goes through this lengthy explanation of all of his spiritual accomplishments. This is a passage that's familiar to many people. He goes through a lengthy explanation of all of his spiritual accomplishments, and at the end he says, I count all of those things garbage. Why? He recognizes at the end of the day, they don't have any value 
He counts them all garbage. What? So that he may gain Christ. Romans chapter 4, verses 4 to 5 says this, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. These verses are setting righteousness by faith and righteousness by our own works at odds with one another. It's not a both and. It's exclusive. You are either trying to earn God's favor through the stuff that you're doing or you're trusting that what Christ has done for you is enough. And a person who is trying to earn their own righteousness, Romans tells us, has earned death as his wage because the wages of sin are death. Ephesians chapter 2 Verses 8 and 9 say this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. These are familiar verses to us, but God wants the glory when a sinner comes to, to, to him. He says, it's, it's not by works so that no one can boast. Romans chapter 3 says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. When we come to God, we have to do so with empty hands because you're not going to survive the audit. Good works are useless to contribute to our standing with God. God accepts us only on the basis of grace through faith. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this point, but Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9 says this, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. You've heard people say when they refer to, to clothing at a store or something that somebody else is wearing, I wouldn't be caught dead wearing that. You will be caught dead if you are found wearing your own righteousness. Because your own righteousness is not going to cut it. My own righteousness is not going to cut it. We've got to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and that's why Paul is saying that he wants to be found in him with a righteousness that's wholly apart from him. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 to 26 says this, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The genius of the gospel is that there is a righteousness outside of us wholly apart from the works that we can supply. The genius and the glory of the gospel is that that in spite of the fact that you can't possibly be righteous enough, that you can't possibly fill that folder full of enough stuff for God to stamp it good, there is righteousness available to you in Christ. And God can give that righteousness to you if you will receive it in faith. And he doesn't have to do that at the expense of his justice. Because the Bible tells us here, 
that he, he does, it, d- does it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies. What that simply means is God doesn't have to pass over, skin, pass over sin, sweep sin over, under the rug, ignore sin, just say, you know what, I'll let you slide this time. He doesn't let one single sin in the universe slide. All of our sin has been laid on Christ. He's dr- he has drunk the full cup of the Father's wrath, and we can be, this Bible term, justified. If you were here for the gospel-centered life, justification means that you have the legal standing of perfect righteousness before God. And friends, justification is, the, is, this, is another term for what it means for God to accept you. When we're talking about acceptance with God and on what basis God will accept us, it's only if we're perfectly righteous and we can't be perfectly righteous. You can't be perfectly righteous. I can't be perfectly righteous. And that is why we need Jesus. So, so works could never be a qualifying condition for your acceptance with God because you could never put enough of them together. I also want to make the point that faith is not a work. Faith is not a work. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Even even the the meager faith that you can pull together to see that the the significance of the cross for you, even even that faith that you have is a gift. Jonathan Edwards put it this way, Surely the beggar's looking on the money he has in his hands as a sign of, kind, of the kindness of him who gave it to him is in no respect inconsistent with the freeness of that kindness. Saying, we're all spiritual beggars. And at best, all we can do is put our, hand, our hands and receive the gift of Christ's righteousness. We don't get it because we contribute anything to the equation. We get it because God is merciful. Now, this is the kind of thing that we often think, well, none of us really think this, right? But it's important for us as believers to rehearse this to ourselves. It's important for us to remember that our obedience, our own attempts at moral transformation, the good works that we could cobble together to bring as an offering before God to recommend ourselves to Him are not in any way a qualifying condition of His acceptance with us. It is by grace, through faith, and what Christ has done for us. Christ does not ask you to better yourself to come to Him. Christ does not say, I hope you don't have a checkered past because people with checkered pasts can't come to me. Christ does not say, you've got to do well for the rest of your life now that you're in. He says, come to me and receive my righteousness and leave yours behind. The second thing here we've said Good works cannot acquire our acceptance with God. Good works cannot acquire our acceptance with God, but good works do not maintain our acceptance with God. Good works do not maintain our acceptance with God. Christian people, I think, often treat God kind of like a boss 
who gives them a shot at their first job, even though they don't really qualify for it. So sometimes you get you, you go into an interview and you don't really have the skill set, you haven't gone to school for this, but the boss says, I'll give you a chance. I'll hire you. You didn't earn the job, you don't really have a resume to bring him, he just hires you. And one of the things you off, you'd say when you were leaving that situation is, I promise I won't let you down. Okay? I won't let you down. I'll work hard. I'll make sure that you don't regret your decision. And I think a lot of us treat God that way. God shows us grace in Christ, and we become believers, and we become part of the family of God, and then we spend the rest of our lives working as if staying in was dependent on us. And our whole lives are built around, God, I won't let you down, or God, I'm sorry I screwed up, I'll make it up to you. Good works don't help you acquire God's favor or God's acceptance, and good works don't help you maintain it. Now, we're going to talk about good works. So you good works people that love, that love talking about deeds, and you think I'm going off the rails here, wait till next week. We'll get there. I promise you'll have stuff to do. But right now, you've got to get this point that I'm making. That good works, the good deeds that we have, do not maintain our standing before God. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says this, well-known verses, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentiles. That's what we were just talking about. It's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone, not our own righteousness. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. This verse is telling us that we don't start in faith and continue in works. We don't start with grace, but continue with the things that we can do. Okay, we're going to have things to do. But the things that we do, the way we obey, is not maintaining our justification before God. The Bible also talks about this in the book of Galatians. I want to spend a few minutes here in the book of Galatians talking through this. But Galatians chapter 3 and verses 1 to 3 says this. This is Paul talking to a family of churches in a region called Galatia. That's why the letter is called Galatians. It's a family of churches. And here's what he says using fairly strong language. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Now, I don't have time to walk through Galatians in its entirety with you to help you understand this, but when he says, after beginning by means of the Spirit, that equals exercising faith in Jesus. Okay? He's just said, He's just, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified before you. Paul is, is talking about the fact, I have preached the gospel of free grace to you in Christ, and you, respe- you received the Spirit, not through what you could do, but through believing. Okay, so now having started with the Spirit, having started with believing, are you now trying to finish your life depending on the flesh, be te- depending on human effort? 
Now, what was going on in the Galatian churches that would make Paul issue this kind of warning to them? Let's try to examine that. In chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, he says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. Flip me, will you? But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Fairly strong language, right? If anyone preaches another gospel, me, an angel from heaven, let him be damned. That's what he's saying. Strong language. Now, why would he use such strong language? What was the, what was the heresy? What was the false gospel that was going on in the Galatian churches? Were they denying that Jesus Christ was God? Were they denying Christ as a way to salvation? Were they saying that the resurrection didn't happen at all? What kind of heresy would cause Paul to use such strong language? Well, we're going to find out in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. We're going to get a hint of it. Stay with me here. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose, and this is the key to it, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Let me see if I can boil this down and help you understand what's going on. Okay, he talks about the fact that he goes to Jerusalem and he's, he's, he's sharing his gospel with the church leaders in Jerusalem, saying, this is what I've been preaching everywhere. Free grace in Christ, wholly apart from works. And it hints at the fact that he takes Titus with him, somebody who is not a Jew, and... They're trying to get him to be circumcised. Now, that's kind of weird for us to think about in our day and age, but circumcision was a right that God's people were to submit to, along with several other things in the law of Moses. So what was going on here, even though that's the, the specific issue, what was going on in the Galatian churches is that false believers were coming in and say, Jesus is all fine and good, Believe in Jesus, but you've got to add to Jesus something else. I'm losing papers all over here. You've got to add something else to Jesus. Jesus will save you, but Jesus isn't enough for you to live the righteous life that God wants you to live. If you really want to be righteous, you're going to, you're going to add Jewish law to your practice. So you're going to follow the rites and the customs and the holy days and the dietary laws and all those sorts of things. Jesus is good, but you've got to add this on to it as well. Okay. So we haven't denied Jesus. We haven't said that the resurrection didn't happen. We haven't said that, that Jesus is dead. We haven't said any of these heresies. 
And yet Paul uses such strong language for that situation. Why? Because Paul recognized that in doing so, you were adding a system of works to the gospel and seeking to maintain your acceptance and your worthiness before God by what you do. And Paul's point is this. Jesus did enough. We're going to see a case study of this in the next verses. Chapter 2, verses 11 to 17, and verses 20 to 21. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before, certain, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Gentiles are just non-Jews. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, again, that's Peter, in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not quote-unquote sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law will no one be justified. Here's the crux of the issue put by Tim Keller. If you add anything to Christ as a requirement for acceptance with God, If you start to say, to be saved, I need the grace of Christ plus something else, you completely reverse the order of the gospel and make it null and void. Any revision of the gospel reverses it. Now this error is much more subtle for believing people. Because most of us in here would not say, If someone has to say, what must I do to be saved? You would not tell your neighbor, well, there's the Ten Commandments, and there's these things you need to give to your church. Uh, You need to show up most of the time. You need to do this stuff. None of us would say that. At least most of us would not say that. But we are far more likely to fall into that trap of saying, Jesus is good, But here's a system of practices that you must follow if you really want to live a righteous life. And we spend our lives knowing that Jesus has got us in, but living and obeying as if it depended on us to stay in. As if he was a boss who gave us a chance, who gave us grace, who showed us grace, and the rest of the time it's up to us not to screw the whole thing up. The problem, as verse 21 says, is that believing that the gospel is not sufficient to make you righteous. The good news about Jesus is absolutely sufficient to give you the righteousness that you need to have a right standing before God. And you need that righteousness of Jesus just as much right now as when you first believed. Because at the end of the day, 
We have the Spirit within us, and we're now able to do good works. I said we were going to talk about that. So those of you who are starting getting worried that there's too much grace here. The Bible says that there's good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. But you've got to understand the motive behind those works. Those good works don't maintain your standing before God. Jesus maintains your standing before God. And it doesn't... If, you've, if you think you've had a good week of obeying and you think God is, think I'm going to be, I have a better standing with God this week because I've had a fa- fairly successful week. Really? That just uncovers the fact that we don't realize how sinful we still are. When you feel like you can go boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need because you did a good job today, That's anti-gospel. That's going boldly to the throne of the grace on basis of what you have done. But but the Bible tells us that we can go boldly to the throne of grace, as Hebrews says, and find mercy and help in time of need. Why? Because we have a great high priest who has gone ahead of us. And so it's important, important for you to get this, that 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 works are a necessary consequence of our acceptance with God, but they are not in any way a qualifying condition of God's acceptance with us. Right, our righteousness comes from God. It is by faith from first to last. And having begun in the Spirit, we must continue in the Spirit. We must continue in a, in a daily, weekly, moment-by-moment reliance on what Jesus has done. Let me just give... A few closing thoughts for you. Believing that we must maintain our acceptance with God by the good stuff that we do leads to these kinds of things. Okay? The first one, it deceives us into self-reliance. When we think that we can live righteously enough to satisfy God. You must start every day admitting your failure. You have failed before you've started. Because, because our concept of holiness is too small. Okay, we're talking about infinite holiness, a standard that you could never meet. And so when you start your day, you must start it in reliance that in spite of my failures, I know because, of, because my faith is in Jesus that you will show me grace. When we attempt to continue in the flesh, when we attempt to maintain our acceptance before God, we are deceived into relying on ourselves. Secondly, it reduces our concept of holiness. I've got a quote here that says this, Only a fraction of the present body of professing Christians are solidly appropriating, that's gathering for themselves, the justifying work of Christ in their lives. Many have so light an apprehension or understanding of God's holiness and of the extent and guilt of their sin that consciously they see little need for justification, although below the surface of their lives they are deeply guilt-ridden and insecure. When we think that we can maintain our standing before God, God's acceptance with us by what we are doing, we inevitably have to reduce the concept of what holiness is. It can't be a God-sized concept of holiness. It has to be a me-sized concept of holiness because it has to be something that I can attain, something that I can somehow have some chance at doing. 
Thirdly, it makes us proud. When we believe that we can do the kinds of things that are necessary to make ourselves righteous, to maintain our standing with God, we are inevitably going to, what is inevitably going to be bred in us is a competitive spirit. Okay, if you're, if you're relying on yourself, then one of the metrics, one of the ways that you're going to measure yourself is by comparing yourself to the people around you. How am I doing in relation to the person sitting next to me? What about some of the folks at church? What about my neighbors? How am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? And it can lead to spiritual pride because I'm going to develop a system for myself that I believe is making me holy and I'm doing better at it than you. But for some of us, fourthly, it might discourage us. Because you see the standard of righteousness and you realize that you can't hit it. And day after day after day is spent going to God saying, I'm saying, I'll do better tomorrow. I'll do better tomorrow. I won't let you down tomorrow. I'll I'll make it up to you. There's no making it up to God. You can't make up that debt. And so what, what we as believers have to do is rest. Rest daily in the fact of the finished work of Christ and what it has accomplished for us. Fifthly, it can cause division. When we rely on ourselves, it can cause division. And sixthly, it dishonors the cross of Christ. Galatians 3.21, which we already read, says clearly that if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Remember, these people weren't denying that you needed Jesus. They were just saying, Jesus is good, but you also need this. And Paul was saying, no, Jesus is is enough for you just as much as when you first believed as when you are laying on your deathbed, and you will appeal to his righteousness just as much then as you did at the first. Believers, we've got to understand We've got to have the right motivation behind why we do the good things that we do. And and our works don't amount to anything when it comes to our acceptance with God. They are rubbish. They are garbage. Don't be found in them. You must be found in the righteousness of Christ. I'll leave you with this quote. There is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development because of which we are acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake, or we cannot ever be accepted at all. This is not true of us only when we believe. It is just as true after we have believed. It will continue to be true as long as we live. Our need of Christ does not cease with our believing, nor does the nature of our relation to Him or to God through Him ever alter, no matter what our attainments in Christian graces or our achievements in Christian behavior may be. It is always on His blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. So my statement that I gave you at the beginning Good works are the necessary consequence, not a qualifying condition for acceptance with God. Next week, we're going to talk about the fact that they are a necessary consequence of our acceptance with God. But logically, this is the foundation for works. 
the fact that God has fully accepted us in Christ, past, present, and future.